Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We would like to welcome Sir Vincent Fien, born in Burnley some 65 years ago. Do we really want to go public with that? <laughs> Vincent studied French and German in Sheffield before joining the diplomatic service. He studied a bit of Arabic and found himself then dividing his career between Europe and the Middle East. He served in Baghdad, in Damascus. He was Britain's ambassador in Tripoli and then as consul general in Jerusalem, taking to the Palestinians in East Jerusalem, the West Bank and Gaza, the occupied Palestinian territories on behalf of the British government. He retired after three years in Jerusalem in 2014. He now chairs the Libyan British Business Council and is a member of the Palestine British Business Council. He's a trustee of the medical charity Medical Aid for Palestinians and a patron of the Britain-Palestine Friendship and Twinning Network. Now, Jerusalem clearly left its mark. This evening, Vincent will draw on his experience there to explain why he still believes in a two-state solution to the Israel-Palestine conflict, ending the 1967 occupation as the best outcome for both peoples, and why that solution is evaporating before our eyes and will disappear unless someone takes decisive political action. The question, of course, is who is to take that decisive political action? And I think in the first instance, the answer is Sir Vincent Keane. I'd love to be able to take decisive political action, but I need to take you with me. Thank you very much, Eugene. Thank you for the introduction. As I drove along today with uh, my wife Anne in the, uh, in the rain, not so much hail, but rain, to, to get here from, uh, from London... I am heartened by your remarks about the warm weather and the... <laughs> Tomorrow we're going to explore Oxford, and we wish, we wish for a dry day. One of the things that I have taken on since um, retirement four years ago now is to be a trustee of a body called the, uh, the Balfour Project that uh, some of you may be aware of, and I'd just like to do a short advert for them and then say I'm speaking for myself, not for them. The Balfour Project is to be found on a website, balfourproject.org, it's an attempt to look back at the activities of the UK government in World War I in an objective way. So it's meant to be educational. There is an element of advocacy in there too, and it's advocacy, if you like, that I've attempted to further. But just to repeat, I'm speaking for myself this evening. I'd like to start with a contention, with a premise, then talk about the role of our country and our government in relation to the conflict, and end up with a proposal. The contention is that equal rights for Israelis and Palestinians are consistent with the values to which the UK says it aspires, that we aspire to, and is also consistent with the interests we seek to promote as a country for our own well-being. As Eugene said in the introduction, in my view, acknowledging those Equal rights, in my opinion, is best served by recognizing the, the right of two peoples to self-determination, including statehood. The United Kingdom government took a little while to recognize the State of Israel, which came into being in 1948. As the mandate power, we took our time, took the Americans 15 minutes, uh, it took us two years to decide to recognize the State of Israel. So that happened in 1950. I believe it's now time for the UK government to do that for the Palestinians on the basis of 1967 lines. 
the pre-June 67 lines. I'll come back to the issue of our values and our interests later on. Eugene told me over coffee just now that um, I don't need to say much about the situation on the ground, and I think he's right. But I want to emphasize the urgency of action. The situation on the ground is dire. I went to Jerusalem with Anne in October 2010, intent on solving the problem. I left in January 2014 with the problem worse, and it's worse again now. And there is a saying in the Foreign Office that just when you think the Middle East peace process has reached its lowest point, you hear a clunk and it goes lower. And I think that's where we are. I won't associate the clunk with Trump, but you can make your own judgment on that. For me, just to set out the parameters, the terms, for me, Palestine is not the whole of mandate Palestine. It is Gaza, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem, uh, the three component parts in my head of a Palestinian state, uh, the three parts occupied in June 1967, the three parts that I was responsible for in terms of UK local relations for the three years that I was there. Talking about Gaza first, two million people locked in. We've got used to it. We shouldn't. Locked in by the occupying power uh, with the connivance of Sisi's Egypt, which doesn't like Hamas. Two million people stuck. In the West Bank, settlements and East Jerusalem, settlements encompassing now 650,000 settlers and the attendant IDF defense forces, high unemployment, not enough jobs for young people coming off the university production line. East Jerusalem, better off. Palestinians in East Jerusalem, better off in the sense that they can buy an Israeli-registered car and travel in Israel. But their situation is precarious. There are about 350,000 of them. Their situation is precarious. They have a blue ID card. They have mitigated rights to remain in Jerusalem, but that can be rescinded. And I heard stories while I was there which I believed that if a Jerusalemite marries a Bethlehemite, then the system pushes them towards Bethlehem. The UK role. Well, we have form on this, on this conflict, and I think that makes us special. Certainly the Palestinians thought we were special. I once asked a Palestinian in Nablus what they made of the UK, and he said, well, you did the Balfour Declaration, you did the mandate, and then you walked and you invaded Iraq with the Americans, and that killed off Saddam Hussein, who was actually spending money on the widows of martyrs in Palestine. And part of my job was to try and improve bilateral relations with the Palestinians, as well as trying to find a peace solution. Uh, the latter was the harder, because in my experience, Palestinians are people of goodwill who are prepared to relate to this country in spite of the history. We did Balfour. We conducted the mandate until 1948. We also co-wrote the Geneva Conventions after World War II and signed and ratified them. And we, the UK, drafted Resolution 242 after the 67 War, a resolution which in the preamble condemns the acquisition of territory by force and talks in the text about withdrawal from occupied territories. I'm not here to speak for the UK government, but I can describe it and its position. We have a position I'd like to distinguish between having a position and having a policy. Having a position means something rather static. Having a policy means trying to implement that policy. I don't think we're doing that. The position was set out very coherently and eloquently by Boris Johnson in a, an article in the Daily Telegraph at the end of October in which he somewhat 
egotistically said it was his peace solution that he was describing. In fact, it's the European Union position, more or less verbatim. Two states, Jerusalem is the shared capital on the basis of 67 with land swaps. Could have said of equal size and value, but with land swaps. An agreement on refugees, security for both peoples, monitored and safeguarded by the international community. That's the position. That's the stated view. That's the aim. But the question I ask is, what are we or others doing to help bring it about? I move on from there to the visit of uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu last November, uh, when Mrs. May and her ministers said that we were going to mark the Balfour centenary with pride. And this is just to illustrate my point about position versus policy. Someone asked Alistair Burt, our Middle East minister, and a good man, an honourable man, um, what Netanyahu had said about settlements in the discussions with the British government. And the answer was nothing, because the British government didn't raise it, on the basis that the Israelis knew what we think, and therefore it didn't need to be said. Well, if you don't say things, then you don't get a response, and if you don't articulate your views, then they go by default. I think that the Palestinian PLO leadership in Ramallah, which is aging, would give their eye teeth for what Boris Johnson described, if that position were to become a reality. The problem is it's not what's on offer from Mr. Netanyahu. If I can summarize what I think is his position, he doesn't articulate it often. You may remember at Bariland back in 2009, he talked about a Palestinian state, and he said it mustn't be like a Swiss cheese with lots of holes in it, settlements. But the reality is that that's the way it's going. So if I can summarize his position as best I guess it, Jerusalem is the undivided capital of Israel, no part of it for the Palestinians. 1967, not the basis for negotiations because those borders are not defensible. No settlement evacuation. He said no bulldozers for settlements. Instead, what we see is a steady policy of, quote, legalization, unquote, of outposts, illegally even under Israeli law, and no full-phased withdrawal of the Israeli Defense Forces from the occupied Palestinian territories. Those words, full-phased withdrawal, are a quote from a speech by President Obama in May 2011, and no end to Gaza closure, so no end to that ghetto for the uh, two million Palestinians. In 2016-17, long after I'd gone, French tried with two conferences, one of which Britain sabotaged, but one of which Britain attended and spoke at. And what I heard from the emissary of France, Pierre Vimont, is that the Israeli discourse was so very different from that of the European Union and the international community that there was no bridging between those two positions. And you may remember neither Israel nor the Palestinians were present at those two conferences. Israel insisted then, as now, that only the U.S. can be the peace broker. So what about the United States and of the U.K. in relation to it? Well, the United States didn't start with Trump. And going back to the eight years of President Obama and as Secretary of State, first Hillary Clinton and then John Kerry, to be brief... Obama blinked. He made good speeches early on, speech in Cairo about reaching out to Islam. I think it was in that speech that he talked about 
the illegality and unacceptability of settlements. I was in Jerusalem when Netanyahu went to the U.S. and spoke before Congress and got 25 standing ovations. He won. I think Kerry tried. Clinton less. Kerry tried. To some extent, again, using an FCO term, he was his own desk officer. He tried to negotiate with shuttle diplomacy between the parties, talking a lot to Netanyahu, talking a lot, a lot to Abbas, keeping a lot off paper. And I think he deserves credit for that, but he failed. He failed partly for the reason that I mentioned earlier about the French. There was no framework for, those, for that shuttle diplomacy, for those would-be negotiations. Not the European Union framework, not the framework of international law, not 242, 338, and so on. Why not? Because Israel wouldn't buy it, so the U.S. didn't try to sell it. I hope it's not um, betraying a confidence to say, Tony Blair came to Jerusalem often in his role as economic mover of the quartet. Not foreign policy, but uh, economic development for the Palestinians. And he was a strong supporter of Kerry, and he told me once, it's very important to get this plane up in the air, meaning negotiations, and then we'll have to see where it lands. And I can understand that as a diplomat. I can understand the idea of getting something going and seeing where it takes you and maybe creating a momentum as you go along. But that's not what happened. The UK role then, in my time and straight after, in 2013-14, was 100% support for Kerry. William Hague was the Foreign Secretary at the time. He spent quite a lot of time in the year of the um, Obama second-term election, encouraging the Americans to engage fully on this conflict. And when he saw what Kerry was doing, he rightly concluded that Kerry was giving this priority over most other things, most of the crises in the world, and giving it time. And he thought it right that the UK should give unquestioning support for Kerry. I think that was logical, but it didn't work. I would commend to you, and I'm sure some of you have read it, the valedictory speech by John Kerry of December 2016, fortnight before he left office. He made a speech in the State Department justifying the U.S. abstention on Resolution 2334 at the U.N. Security Council. Quite bitter about the effort that he'd put in that hadn't succeeded and he said something which is still true. His fear was that if nothing changes, there will definitely be an Israeli state. The state of Israel is not in question. But if nothing changes, it moves to being separate and unequal, to quote him. Now, when he made that speech, he was two weeks away from relative oblivion, out of power, a lame duck. So he spoke honestly but too late to make a difference. Moving on then to President Trump. His, in my view, foolish decision on Jerusalem and his not-yet-appeared plan, and trying to link that to the view of the United Kingdom. To its credit, the British government opposed and continues to oppose President Trump's decision to move the embassy to Jerusalem and to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Uh, the British Embassy isn't going anywhere. It's going to stay in Tel Aviv, and the rest of the Europeans will stay there too. But, nevertheless, the British government position is to await the plan. Whatever it is, whenever it is, and if ever it is, knowing that it will be acceptable only to Israel 
and not to the Palestinians. But the UK says US leadership is indispensable. President Abbas spoke uh, to the UN Security Council on the 20th of February, suggesting a peace conference, an international peace conference. Two things about that. One, the idea was dead on arrival. Israel will not play, and America will not play. The second is that in the response to that speech, uh, the UK Deputy Permanent Representative at the UN said, we need the US. That's an interesting question. I think the US is indispensable, but not enough, not sufficient to generate change. And under the present administration, it's actually compounding the problem rather than addressing it. Why should we care? Why care? I hear often that this conflict is now minor compared with the bloodshed in Yemen, you name it, across the Arab world, Syria, and so on. And it's certainly true that it is not the main or the only source of conflict in the Middle East. But I think we should care for a few reasons. Uh, This is not a popular thing to say with politicians, but I think our past form on this conflict gives us a certain responsibility. Not to apologize, but our past gives us, in my opinion, a uniquely influential role for the future if we choose to play it. It's that matter of choice. I think we should care because change for the better in this conflict would be consistent with our values, our declared values of justice and the search for equality under the law. And again, as a diplomat, I used to try and combine values and interests. My job was to serve British interests as well as seek to explain and uphold British values. I think our domestic security interests, our home office interests, lie in opposing injustice and being seen to do so, and conscious of the Islamic State propaganda, which claims that Israel is above the law and that the continued occupation of Jerusalem is a slight against Islam. Islamic State tries to portray this conflict as a religious one. I don't think it is, but the risk to our interests here at home and elsewhere is that its portrayal as such convinces people in our own community. One more point, which I hope will not need to be to come true, but if we leave the European Union, which I hope we won't, then international law will matter more because we'll be lonely and we'll depend on it more. And last but not least, I think we should care because of the best interests of the two peoples themselves. And I believe it's in the best interests of both peoples for the one-state outcome not to become a fixture, not to become a certainty, which is where we're going. So what's my proposal? To work and argue here, where we have some clout, all of us, for equal rights for Israelis and Palestinians, I believe that's far more likely in two states than in one. My practical suggestion is, and this may sound a bit weak, is to have a one-day conference in London on the implications of British recognition of the state of Palestine on 67 lines. Why? Because our government is aware of the arguments about recognition. William Hague, back in 2011, said, we reserve the right to do that, to recognize Palestine at a time of our choosing and when it can help 
bring about peace. That's changed a bit over the years and tends not to be clear anymore. But the gist of our position, the UK position, is we will recognize the second state in the two-state solution after the Israelis and Palestinians have reached a deal and not before. But the prospects for that deal are, as I've tried to describe, currently non-existent. So this is a rather hypothetical will to recognize the Palestinian state. The issues that I've tried to describe are summed up in a, in a statement in the Balfour Centenary Booklet that, if I may, I'll ask Anne to bring to the table because I've forgotten to bring it. They're in the boot of the car. But the declaration which that contains is still open for signature by what I describe as people of standing in the United Kingdom. And there are two basic points. One is that the UK government should now recognize the state of Palestine alongside Israel on the basis of the pre-June 67 borders. And the second, which goes with it, is that the British should uphold rigorously the Geneva Conventions that we wrote and the UN Security Council resolutions that we drafted. That's uncomfortable politically because it means discomforting the government of Israel. But words of condemnation of settlements are now two a penny from our government. I counted 20 condemnations in one year in my time, and the settlement expansion has accelerated rather than slowed down since my time. So the idea of deeds, not words, is discomforting for politicians, but I think it's necessary. And to sum up the situation of the political parties in the UK, the Conservative government, Conservative Party, is not minded to recognise the state of Palestine. The last election, the Labour manifesto said they would. The Lib Dems had an autumn conference five months ago and said they would. The Scottish Nationalists have had it in their manifesto for the last two years. And the Greens, who are not numerous in Parliament but exist, she said she would too. So that lot, at least theoretically, and the, the test comes when somebody comes into government, but at least theoretically, the alternative to the Conservative government would recognize the state of Palestine. And the state is signed by a number of conservative peers and MPs, as well as others. And I think this may be a cause for optimism, but certainly it's a cause for dogged persistence. Changing the mindset in our own country from one of wait and see, and wait and see what somebody else does, to active support for two states on the basis of equal rights is my argument. And I'll end just by saying... Can it be done? Well, recognition is possible. The numbers that I've mentioned in the parliamentary parties of the opposition and indeed within the Conservative Party tell me that if there was a free vote on this, which there will not be, recognition would come. Is it going to happen? That depends on us making a noise. Will it make a difference? 130 countries have recognised the state of Palestine, two-thirds of the UN. Sweden was the last European country to do so in October 2014. I think... It could make a difference. Equating the rights of two peoples in a visible, registered way seems to me to be important. But equally important is the second part of that declaration, which is the upholding of the law. And that's where the discomfort comes in. Is it a panacea? No. Will it change the occupation overnight? No. Is it the right thing to do? 
Yes. Thank you.